Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 10th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. Where we last left off, the Emperor Domitian, refusing to work with the Senate, has become the next emperor to be assassinated and is succeeded by Nerva. Brett, is our next emperor going to be operating more under the spirit of brotherly love? Uh, <laughs> not, not quite. Uh, he's definitely going to be uh, more looked upon by history more favorably, but I don't think any of the emperors are exactly the nicest people. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, it's hard to call Nerva nice when it's pretty obvious that he, if not, if he didn't orchestrate Domitian's death, he definitely knew about it and did nothing. He was uh, like part of the inner circle of Domitian and when when the Praetorian Guard killed him, because even though he was killed at the behest of the Senate, he was, um, you know, uh, a, the actual dirty work was done by the Rome by Rome's private like secret service, basically. And this is we're going to we're going to see this more and more as time goes on with Roman emperors is technically the ones in charge. And even though they're the ones that call the shots, they are kind of at the 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 mercy of their private security called the praetorians these are like the elite this is like an elite group of soldiers who act as the personal bodyguards to the roman emperors they were founded by augustus but more and more they kind of become this corrupt institution that basically blackmails the emperor into getting favors and money and bonuses in exchange for literally not being killed yeah right? and i could imagine that the idea behind them originally was probably to prevent the emperor from being assassinated and that, <laughs> that is right <laughs> they they enable the emperor to make unpopular decisions with the senate they they basically ensure that the emperor has true authority in the city of rome because mm -hmm. without it with it with it they're they, meaning the emperors, are the only ones with like real firepower in the city. Yeah, everyone else is kind of left to their own devices, and they control the real authority. And in Rome, and in, in life in general, honestly, that's that's the important thing, right? Is like at the end of the day, it's like that you have you can back your authority with that kind of power. And that's, and that's kind of like, I think that has modern day, like we've learned from the Romans and we have like something called the secret service. And even after uh, a president is no longer president, they still, I think, have one or two secret service guards always assigned to them for, for the remainder of their life. And that's, that's actually for the reasons that you just described, because presidents make a heck of a lot of decisions that some people really hate. And they, they kind of need to know in the back of their mind that like, hey, no matter how much flack I'm going to get for this decision, my life is never in jeopardy. Yes. It's also like it's also the equivalent of like, especially in New York, the relationship between like the mayor of New York and like the head of the police is not always a, like a comfortable one. Right. No. <laughs> and and they both kind of like try to exert control over each other and it's like in theory they're supposed to be on the same team but we often get this idea of like the police will like let bad things happen to like basically cripple the mayor's of like uh base right like i remember 
there was murmurs in on the 4th of July of like a blue flu, mm. right? Where the police were not happy with how the mayor was handling the Black Lives Matter movement in New York. And they were threatening to not go on strike because that's technically illegal, but go on strike by just calling in sick using their sick days, right? And that would kind of like uh, weaken the, the, the government's position. So we have the uh, Praetorian Guard that's there to protect the emperor. How does that go wrong? How do they get corrupted? I mean, they, the, the leaders, the leader of the Praetorian Guard, they're called prefects, right? Mm -hmm. And the prefects are chosen by the emperor. They're usually like very loyal soldiers, but they also kind of have their own agendas and their own whatever. And so to answer your question of how they get corrupted, they get corrupted from the top down. The prefect is the one. And there's already been, there's already been uh, like a history of the prefects kind of like doing what they want to do. Like, for example, the second emperor, Tiberius, right? There was a huge thing with him where his prefect, Sejanus, was... Um, basically running the whole country behind his back and like because you know the prefect was like he would tell tiberius like everyone's out to get you everyone's trying to kill you you need to sequester yourself away i'll screen all of your incoming calls all your incoming you know meetings i'll field your emails and i'll make sure that you only get the real stuff and i mean if you're you know if you're the gatekeeper to the king then you're you're the king, right? You get mm. to decide who gets whose voices are heard and whose whose pleas are thrown in the garbage. Not to go on too much of a tangent, but Sergenus eventually is found out and killed for his role here. But this is like right from the very beginning, we're seeing this happen, right? That's interesting about like screening information because I I think that you know like as a president, you have like a cabinet, and some of those cabinet officials, like you know, if you if I just got on my email and decided to send an email to the White House. Someone's deciding like what exactly is going through. Like someone at some level yeah. is making a decision of like, this is a random nobody into the trash this goes, or, you know, generic, thank you for your inquiry kind of email <laughs> being of sent. Um, and that's, that, that I think is important because I think there's a lot of power, not just in the figurehead, but those around the figurehead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's no one rules alone. And uh, this is 100% part of it is picking people who are working. It's, it's hard, right? Because we all, we're all different. And as such, no one's best interest perfectly aligned with someone else ever, right? There's mm -hmm. always going to be at least a small deviation. And so part of your job as a ruler is not picking people who not only picking people who are loyal and in this case what loyal means is picking people who will work in your best interest and not in their best interest yeah or or who trust you to work in your best interest because it means their best interest right that's hard but yeah so so the praetorian guard more and more we'll see they're getting out of control but they assassinate the mission and before uh like anyone can kind of blink an eye the senate has Nerva elevated to the rank of emperor mm -hmm. and the Petro the Praetorian guard is frankly not happy about this there's there's always this power struggle in Rome between 
the Senate, the people, and the military. The military is almost unanimously represented by the Praetorian Guard, although sometimes it's represented by the provincial armies. The Senate is represented by the, the upper class, and the people are the starving, unwashed masses, right? Yeah. And so the there's like always a power struggle of like who's going to get to be emperor. Everyone wants their own representative. And what ends up happening is the um, the Praetorian Guard's not super thrilled about this. And right at the beginning of Nerva's reign, he's dealing with potential uprisings and he's dealing with open revolt from his own bodyguards. This is, I mean, I don't have to tell you, this is not good, Aaron. Right? <laughs> but Nerva acts quickly. Nerva is nothing if not a, a good, Nerva is nothing if not clever. This that's good. <laughs> Nerva is nothing if not clever, and so very quickly, very early on in his rule, Nerva names as his successor a man named Trajan, and Trajan is a a legate of the army in the Iberian Peninsula. He's a really, really liked general. Uh, the legate is like a general. I apologize, like a four or five star general, right? That that quiets down the murmuring from the. The Praetorian Guard, and it ensures that Nerva won't be murdered in his sleep. That's basically the only thing that Nerva does that's worth mentioning in his his reign as emperor. He also, because Domitian, as soon as Domitian dies, his memory is like damned, basically. And when they do that, one of the things that they generally do is they take all the statues that were built of you and they, you know, hawk them for parts. So one of the things that Nerva did be uh was to kind of like demolish some of Domitian's uh, statues to kind of like help the budget a little, right? <laughs> but that's, it's like, that's barely worth mentioning. The thing that's really, and it's funny because Nerva is considered to be one of the five good emperors. And with the death of Domitian and the, the coronation of Nerva, we are now in what uh, Gibbons refers to as the Pax Romana, the, the golden age of Rome. Mm-hmm. And it starts with Nerva. And the only thing that Nerva did I, I think is he he made Trajan his heir and and started all of this right. Okay, so the guy basically burns down some statues. No no presidential library for Domitian. Just you're you're terrible. You're out. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and then quickly finds somebody who's more competent or than himself to kind of succeed and take over. Got Nerva it. was very com- Nerva was pretty competent. Uh, you don't you don't get to where he is without being with by being incompetent. But he saw how dangerous the, the climate was. And the thing is that Nerva had old before this, Nerva's an old dude, right? Yeah. Uh, before this, he was he seemed to be like kind of like a puppet master kind of guy and um, controlling things from the shadows. And I'm editorializing a bit here, but it doesn't he doesn't seem like the kind of person who would have been particularly thrilled to be named emperor run things from behind the scenes. I want to be the king maker, not the king, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think you don't get to be old just being too much in the spotlight around. It, it seems like that's a good rule around Rome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, no, that's true, is, is the the most dangerous soldiers are not the young ones who are fit and in the prime of their life. It's the old dudes because you don't get to be an old soldier from being weak, you know? <laughs> uh, and it's the same thing in Rome. You don't get to be an old politician from being slow, you know? Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, uh, so let's let's dive in. Let's talk about the, uh, the 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 Trajan regime here. Trajan. Trajan is is one of my favorite emperors, and he's one of a lot of people's favorite emperors. He's the Senate bestowed upon him the title of Optimus Trajan. He's con he's considered to be by many to be the best emperor. Um, that's a little that's very editorialized. First of all, I mean, like, I, I, how could you say anyone other than Augustus Caesar is is the best emperor? But going forward in the future, people uh, people will view Trajan as a, a good one, two, top three. Let's say so. Trajan. One thing that's immediately worth mentioning about Trajan is that. He's a provincial. Well, okay, sorry. He's not technically a provincial. A provincial would be someone in like the a non a non Roman citizen living in a Roman territory, and he's not technically that. But he's pretty close to that. I mean, he he was born and grew up in the Iberian Peninsula, modern day Spain, specifically southern Spain, right around Granada, which actually might also not be a modern state that might only be Middle Ages. So I apologize for that. Uh, let's just say Southern Spain, the Southern uh, Peninsula of Spain. And uh, basically uh, an immigrant, hmm. right? He is not a Roman, he is a Roman citizen, but he doesn't look like the Romans. He has his own language that's kind of like spiced up with like some Germanic words because he, he grew up on the frontier. And so it's like in the same way that like there's like versions of English in Texas and Southern California, that's like almost like a cross between English and Spanish, where it's like it's like English with like Spanish words thrown in. If you heard it, you would probably understand most of it, but you'd immediately recognize that it's not pure English. What he spoke, what he grew up in, and and yeah, I, the point I'm trying to make, and I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, and I apologize for that, is that he's he's a, a an outsider. Huh. Now, this is interesting. So would you say that he kind of came from humble origins? Like, would that be no. fair? No, no. Okay. He's <laughs> they, not. The, the propaganda would say that. They would say like, <laughs> they would say that he's a, a a humble farmer. Yeah. So like the propaganda around him would have said, just like just like modern day, it would have said like he's he was a humble farmer. He was a humble provincial who worked hard and through his hard work became uh, the emperor. But in reality, in reality, he was not a farmer. He owned a plantation. Okay. Right? Uh, I'm not saying he didn't work hard, but no one became em no one becomes emperor through just like being like some some no name nobody who rises through the ranks, and not to alienate anyone here, but no one becomes president from being like oh I'm just some no name guy whatever you know the propaganda they play it up and they'll be like oh you know simple guy humble beginnings hard worker but it's always there's some amount of clout you need to get to that status. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think though that like perhaps having a few hurdles to jump through might be good for character development. I'm not saying, oh, you know, I'm not saying that um, this guy went from a, a peasant farmer to, to emperor in one generation like that. But I think, I think ha being an outsider and just having a few things that you have to, whereas I, I think of an emperor such as Nero who, you know, okay, you're going to be emperor at 18 or whatever. You didn't do anything at all to really deserve this. You're just being handed it that 
period of character formation doesn't really happen when you're just when it's a dynasty and it's just being handed to you. And I kind of like that you I like and I, I think there's something to be said about politicians today, even if they do come from fairly affluent backgrounds or upper middle class backgrounds or whatever. I like I like people that have had to jump through some hoops in their life. I, I just trust them a heck of a lot more. Oh, we we all do. And that's why the our 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 betters wage these propaganda campaigns, put these giant propaganda campaigns in place to make them seem more like that person. You know, they'll they'll do things like they'll say, like, you know, like, oh, um, you know, I, I you know, grew up in a small household with a, a single mom where I studied every night to put myself through law school so I could become <laughs> president. Or they'll say, like, I got a very small loan from my father and then I was able to because of how smart and savvy <laughs> I am, I was able to turn that loan into an empire or they'll be like, I was a peasant farmer and. I, you know, through my guile and wit, I was able to convince the land, the wealthy landowner to make me a person of authority. It's just, I mean, it just, it happens all the time, every year, forever and ever. It'll happen for the next president and the next emperor and whoever is going to rule us after that, some super intelligent ape, perhaps, with like a <laughs> that makes him speak English and it'll happen, right? <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I, I, we should definitely touch base in another episode, like if there's ever been anyone who actually did start off as a peasant and really worked yeah. their way up. I, I mean, there I'm has sure to, there's been some. Somebody, but... right? Well, okay, you're right. I'm sure there's been some, but Trajan was definitely not it. Uh, <laughs> and in terms of our government, I don't think any of our presidents have ever been it either. Yeah, um, there's been there's been some 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 level of pri- some level of privilege, some little you no, know, even Wa- I mean Washington was also a plantation owner just as you described, yeah, you know, so a plantation owner and a wealthy land surveyor, you know, like, Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So, he's got some advantages in life, but a few hurdles to jump over. Absolutely. And one of those hurdles is that the Senate doesn't trust him. They don't like him. Oh, well, out- I could I could say I could see why. <laughs> he's he's an he's an outsider and he he's military, right? Mm-hmm. But the Senate in time is going to come to love Trajan. They are going to adore this guy. Trajan does many building projects in Rome. He does many building projects in his home province of Iberia. Or sorry, Iberia is not a province. Let's just say area of Iberia. Um, he undertakes many wars and he's victorious in them. And that's really important. Yeah. Winning wars makes you a popular leader. I think everywhere, honestly. That might just be like my American bias, but I'm pretty sure winning wars makes you a popular leader pretty much all over the world. So, so yeah, let's dive into Trajan. So Trajan is probably best known for a, a building project he undertook in Rome called Trajan's Column, which is a giant column that depicts his victory over uh, Decebalus, the king of Dacia, uh, in the Danube province of Moesia. Moesia. And this, this victory is a big deal because if you'll recall from our previous podcast, uh, Decebalus is able to wage war because of concessions that were made to him by Domitian. Domitian tried to wage war in Dacia and failed, and then basically paid Decebalus money to build walls and ramparts and tried to like turn him into a buffer state. But instead, 
Decebalus built the walls facing Rome, right? Which made which made him a threat. So Trajan did away with that. He went in there and he he really messed him up. And Dacia has lots of gold, big gold mines in Dacia. And so this war victory, more than just being a moral victory for Rome, is incredibly financially or fiscally beneficial to them. Uh-huh. They get a huge influx of money. And this is, I mean, for a long time in Rome's history, this is how Rome stays powerful, is this idea, I think, in people's minds of, like, Rome is strong because they just have smart people doing smart things and they're busy industrious. But it's, you know, it's it's war. You you go into a territory and you take their stuff and then you're you're richer. That's it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, no, I I think I think that's that's a really good reminder that it's not just like you know they're just not they're not just sitting there just it's not like Athens where they're just doing great math equations all day and just uplifting the spirit like they are they are just pillaging and going into new territories and again it's an empire right an empire by definition is conquering you know is annexing new territory and not just like hey you're a Roman citizen welcome to the club my friend it's more like hey we're here to kind of take your grain and kind of here to take all your goodies away from you and and like that that is oh they're taking (laughs) they're taking your grain they're taking your goodies and they're taking you you're going you're (laughs) slavery Rome is a slave empire the the wealthy had whole estates run by slaves. The life of a slave in Rome was a a varied and interesting one, depending on what you were doing and what era you were a slave in. I mean, you know, I, I think we maybe spoke about it much earlier on, but a slave in Rome could be like a school teacher. Oh no, we didn't be- talk about this. Is interesting. Oh, we never talked about <laughs> slavery in Rome. A slave in Rome is fascinating. So, one slaves. Slaves in Rome could make money. They could earn salaries. Like you as a teacher would be considered a slave. I as an engineer would be considered a slave because we don't own our own businesses. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it's, we would be slaves and it's like slaves could make their own money. It was a political distinction. Like you couldn't vote as a slave. You couldn't, um, I don't want to say you couldn't own property because you could own stuff, but like you couldn't, I think you couldn't own land. Yeah. Um, certain certain property you couldn't own. You generally wouldn't like if you were a slave and you had a child, the child would be born into slavery. So like you generally wouldn't do that. Right. Um, but at the same time, the job that you were you could buy yourself out of slavery. Let's start with that. And Rome went through several fads where it was like really socially popular to like free your slaves, like to seem like cool and with it. Mm-hmm. And, and Augustus actually had to pass laws at one point limiting the amount of slaves people could free because they were screwing up the slave market Jeez. by just like freeing everyone. Uh, slaves could make money, right? They could earn a salary. They could buy things. They could be out on their own. Um, it was illegal to like assault slaves like a slave could like press charges against you. I mean, there's no such thing as that. It's there's not like a police officer, but like you is like you couldn't necessarily just like beat a slave like American slavery and be like, oh, this is my property. I do what I want, right? Because there were different kinds of slaves in Rome. So like teachers, bureaucrats were slaves for a long time. 
you if you were a slave in Rome, you ranged the gauntlet from being like let's say like a mineral miner in in Spain or Dacia, in which case your life is terrible, right? You're living underground. Your lifespan is probably like several months. You're gonna die in the mines. But then like you might also just not just as likely, but you might also be like uh, like I said, a, a school teacher, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you have like a pretty normal life. You know, uh, you're you're as close to what we would consider the middle class as, as you can get. You live in an apartment building, you, you know, you pay for your own food, you can buy little trinkets to adorn your stuff. Maybe not what you'd expect. You might be a slave on a ship and you might be like a sailor. Um, but anyway, anyway, I'm sorry. I'm super digressing. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely have a, a slavery episode of Rome because I think I think we need to dive in uh, deeper to that. So the economy is basically funded on conquering new territories and ex- taking their people, enslaving them, and then basically also pillaging their resources. Absolutely. And so any great military victory that's not a civil war is going to result in a huge amount of money for, for Rome and, and thus a clout for the person running it at the time. Um, he's Trajan wages successful wars in Dacia. He wages successful wars in the uh, against the Parthians. He actually annexes Armenia. Armenia is a territory on the border of Parthia and Rome that often goes back and forth between who it's loyal to. It acts as a useful buffer state. We've talked about it before. We'll definitely talk about it again. It comes up over and over and over again in Roman history. Armenia is weirdly important, uh, right, for a state that still exists. During Trajan's rule, he annexes Armenia. He also annexes Mesopotamia. Under Trajan, Rome's territorial size will be the largest that it will ever be in Roman history. This is wow. the biggest. This is the biggest Rome will ever get. So, so this is really like an ascent, and I, I think there's a few critical things to point out here. Like one, in order to start annexing new territory, you kind of have to have stability at home first, right? Like I think that's a huge that's a huge pattern I'm seeing here is that when Rome is like stuck in the middle of their fifth civil war, we're not annexing anything. There's no empire being grown. So, I think I, I think from a leadership perspective, having peace at home and and creating those systems for a while is probably what's needed in order to kind of start expanding right it's kind of like you have to have your 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 shit together at home first before we can start spreading that around the world absolutely um although at the same time though some roman generals use the military expansion as a way to calm stuff down at home Mm -hmm. Um, that's for them that's very viable so the these wars are very profitable. They they're huge hit back home. People love him. The Senate loves him. He's because he's building things and he's infusing the economy with with money and resources and slaves, and and he's you know he's he's an all around beloved guy. Um, he has a lot of correspondences with a man named Pliny the Younger. And a lot of what we know about him comes from, excuse me, comes from Pliny the Younger's correspondences with him. And so one of the things that Pliny says is that Trajan was a good emperor because he liked this and disliked the same things that the Senate liked and disliked. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? 
So he's 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 on the same page as the other really powerful people in Rome. Exactly, and that's exactly. probably a good thing. <laughs> yes, he's, he's very deferential towards the senators. He he defers to them in many 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 things, and they love that. There's something. He's the opposite of Domitian in that yeah. regard. This is something that Augustus did really well, and this is something that Trajan does really well. And we're going to see how, I mean, we are seeing how good it is, how successful it is. Right. So I, I think that he's, so he's, he's definitely learned from his predecessor. Like I got to get along, I, mean, I guess two predecessors down, right. If we don't count Nerva, uh, who was just there for a placeholder for a year, he's yeah. learning like we need to be, and may, maybe the fact that he was an outsider, he didn't develop that scorn and resentment for the Senate because he wasn't close to them or around them yeah. as much growing up. So maybe, maybe he kind of just said, Hey, this is a cool body of dudes. I, I can get along with them. It's possible that he has almost I mean the thing is is that with age comes experience and with experience comes perspective yeah and it's possible editorializing that Trajan has enough perspective just like Augustus did because you can like because you can get perspective from war too or experience from war too from just like living really hard and so both these men probably knew there's more important things than like being called emperor when you enter a room and if it makes someone feel better to not do that then just let them have it and and so it's like yeah same thing as augustus right like if the if the senators want to make decisions about what color the banners for the Saturnalia festival are going to be this year. Mm. Just let them, let them do it, you know, and, and maybe throw in, like maybe ask them to do it and be like, you know, Oh, venerated uh, statesman. We, our city could not function without your input on this matter. Do you think we should serve chocolate or strawberry ice cream at the closing (laughs) festivities next week? Right? Like, yeah. So he's he's doing a good move here where he's delegating away as much power as humanly possible. And I'm sure about the things that um, he doesn't really care all that much about, which is probably a good move. And who knows, maybe he does have like one or two reservation issues where he's like, hey, fellas, I, I kind of have to disagree with you here. But because he's giving away so much power, the one or two things that he's probably a stickler about probably aren't such a big deal. On top of that, it's not, it's not just that he's deferring. It's also that the people who he's deferring to are doing a good job on their own. Because it's not just that he's beloved. On top of being beloved, the empire is doing very well under him. We see two decades of peace and prosperity and happiness for, for most Roman citizens, which is more than a lot of emperors can say. So so clearly the people he's deferring to are doing something right. And this is, Trajan is still what we would call the princeps, which is the first citizen, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Trajan in Rome at this time, there is this thing that we call consensus, which is the pact made between the ruler and the ruled. And it means, it essentially boils down to this idea of, the people like want to be ruled by this ruler. There's not, there's not like a direct translation in English. Um, it sounds like consensus, 
which mm-hmm. is like which means like agreement in English, but it's more than just agreement. It's like a trade. You can think of it as like an unspoken law that says, or an unspoken contract where Trajan says like, "I wish to rule the people," and the people say like, "We like what you're doing, so we will be ruled by you." You right. see, now, now this actually has applications in politics today, uh, because we often refer, we often defer to polls, to, and, and polls are not written into the Constitution. You'll never find the word like polls or pollster or anything like that. But typically, if a president has really high poll numbers, it just it, there's nothing that prevents people like uh, preventing a senator from dissenting. But they know, hey, this guy or this gal is like really popular right now. I don't yep. want to go against somebody that that that's this popular because then that backlash is going to come to my home and maybe I won't be reelected because now I'm standing up to somebody who people love and adore. Yeah, absolutely. And so Trajan is is delegating and the people he are delegating to actively want to participate in the, in the Roman government. This mm-hmm. is important because this will change down the line and we'll talk about that later. But for now, Trajan is still the princeps. He's still the first citizen. He's still the leader of a group of like-minded people who are interested in making Rome better, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whatever that means. Um, and, and this is important to note because this this is what allows Trajan to be successful is that Trajan is still working with people whose values and goals are still aligned somewhat with the the goals and values of the people. So like there's this thing in Rome where the rich like to kind of like the way that the rich like show off how rich they are and one up each other at this point in time is they do like public works projects, Mm. you know, philanthropy. That's exactly it. Philanthropy. When you're rich in Rome in 100 AD, you the way that you show off how cool you are and make your neighbors jealous is you like build a new bathhouse and you don't build it for yourself. You build it for the people. You know, that's that's how that's the Roman elite wanted to be remembered like that. I see. So there's okay. So I see a, a number of things happening here. I, and I think this comes back to something we talked about. I think it was either the last podcast or maybe two podcasts ago, where the leader's mentality is really what's kind of trickling down here in many respects. As soon as that leader decides, okay, this isn't really about me, it's about the empire, and he's kind of putting the empire first, then you allow all of these wonderful concessions to happen, and then you allow all of these public works to commence. Because I think that if the emperor has an, a me first kind of mentality, I think that's really kind of where I'm, this is an overly simplified viewpoint, but like if the emperor has a me first mentality, then that, that is actually kind of like one of the originators or the sources of a lot of conflict and a lot of things just not getting done. Well, the point that I'm, I'm trying to make here is that part of what makes Trajan's rule so successful is that everyone's pulling in the same direction. I see. They all they all want the same thing. Trajan wants the or sorry, we'll start with the people. The people want 
public works projects built because it's good for their community. The, yeah. the, the local leaders want to build public works projects because it makes them look good and it, it lets it may, it's like a status thing and Trajan wants them to build it because he wants to give them authority to do stuff and that's like part of that authority. I see. I, I got you. Let's let's talk a little bit about how, and I think we can kind of learn something about this today. How exactly, what was the means for like a regular citizen to kind of make their will known? Like, so let's just say you had a community that really wanted a public gymnasium or a public bathhouse. How, how exactly do they get together and kind of express that message up the food chain? Because I think this is an issue that we deal with today. Like you could be living in a neighborhood, Brett, and it's like, man, why doesn't anyone just fix these darn potholes already? Like it's getting ridiculous, you know? So like, I'm wondering how, how exactly that happens. And I'm wondering like, is it like, does this system of, of sending it up the pipelines improve under different empire er, emperors rather? So it was not too different from today. Honestly, they would like jump on Twitter (laughs) <laughs> not on a smartphone because they didn't have those then it was laptops only right mm-hmm. and then no no i'm just uh joking so uh, they would write letters uh correspondences and it would usually go up the chain where one of the things that the princeps guarantees uh is that like every roman citizen kind of has like the right to be heard by their emperor um that's part of the consensus and mm-hmm. so it's like if you had a corrupt governor and, and they were like, you know, like stealing your tax money and working the, the, the workers to death and, and not being a nice guy, you could write directly to the emperor and then you would get a response. Nice, right? nice. Yeah, maybe not a response from him, someone in his cabinet, let's say. But it was not, it was not uncommon at all for that to happen, the exact scenario I just described, where a corrupt official would be kind of like, I mean, everyone in Rome was corrupt, but let's say too corrupt, right? <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, because remember, taxes work differently in Rome. The way taxes work in Rome at this time is that Rome says, the city of Rome says, we need $100 in tax money. So they go to, uh, let's say, uh, Alicia, and they say, I need to collect a hundred. I want to collect a hundred dollars in tax money. Who will pay me a hundred dollars for the right to tax Elysia? Mm-hmm. And then they'll 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 kind of uh, you know have a bidding war, and then one person or company or whatever you want to call it will eventually win, and they'll be like, "I'll pay you a hundred and ninety dollars for the right to tax this this thing." And then they'll pay the money right to Rome, right out of their pocket. And then for that year, that entity will be allowed to take money from those people in the form of taxes. That's interesting. Wow. Wow. Because I, I, I think that this is kind of important to zoom in on a little bit because we're, we're when we say like things, and, and this is something that we debate in political science a lot, like we say, ah, Trajan was a great emperor and therefore that trickle down there's also theories in politics like can greatness ever trickle up from from the bottom from the ground level so i'm wondering like what what influences in rome make the average citizen either apathetic 
because like I, I think I think one one telltale signs that things are not going right is if you have an apathetic populace. So anytime you have people that are like, man, there's no point in writing a letter. Like nothing, nothing's going to get done. They're never going to fix these potholes. They're never going to build that bathhouse. I think that can also set the tone for how an empire or any country or state kind of runs. Because I think I think there is a somewhat of a, you know, and it depends on how you look at history. Some people think that, oh, it was just a great emperor that brought all that greatness down. Other people might argue that there was more grassroots or more bottom up kind of work being done as well. As, as the empire gets older, we'll start to see uh, the system begins to fray. Part of that reasoning is the noble, the nobility among Rome stopped buying into the whole princeps first among equals, like civil servant, like it's your civic duty. That's kind of like a thing that you see with, I think empires in general actually, um, is that like very early on, it's considered like a great honor to be, uh, to play a role in the Roman government, to be a governor, to be, um, a legate, right? And then as time goes on, the private sector, if there was such a thing, I, mean, I guess you can kind of call it that, becomes more powerful, more wealthy, and more and more, they don't want to, they don't care about the government anymore. They couldn't care less. They, the government doesn't help them earn money. And so they want nothing to do with it. And then once they stop buying into the government, once the 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 provincial governors like basically they're like who wants to collect taxes and they're like we're already collecting taxes we don't need your permission mm -hmm. right we don't want we don't want to pay you tax money like it, it's not an honor anymore to to work for the roman government uh, we're just going to do things on our own that's when the system begins to fall apart Yes, I, I think that's that's really important. And, you know, we could even take a lesson. I think if we go all the way back to the Roman, you know, the Greeks, you know, I think Plato kind of warns about this, that like a, a corroding, like depending on where your value system is at for a society is really going to set the tone at, at every layer of the cake. If, if the value system is like, uh, it's no longer it's no longer honorable to do public works, it's no longer honorable to be uh, you know, of service to the average citizen, just that shift in values and that mental shift can all of a sudden lead to some some huge levels of decay and corrosion. It's selfishness. Like yeah. as selfishness begins to set in and people are not interested in being remembered for their philanthropic works and are just like, I'll just like, I don't need friends. I could just buy friends, you know, like... That that moral decay, at least in part, causes the an existential threat to to a country, to an empire, to a whatever. Um, excellent. No, excellent. I like that. Just just the, the selfishness is an existential threat to an empire. That's a beautiful. I mean, <laughs> that's it, a beautiful it, line. <laughs> it's 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 obvious, right? Like the uh, nations are literal literally communities, right? That's what they are, and so the. The, the ultimate threat of community is selfishness, is people not willing to work at the behest of the community, but only work at the behest of themselves. Beautiful. Ah, I, I love that. Okay, so moving on with Trajan, does he do anything wrong or is it pretty much a flawless reign? We don't have a lot of bad things that he does, unfortunately. A lot of the records from this era, I mean, it's all propaganda, right? But <laughs> from what we can tell from archaeological evidence, 
yeah, he's he's doing great. This is truly a golden age for Rome, the beginning of the Pax Romana. He so let me let me read the inscription on the Trajan's column, right? The Senate and the people of Rome give or dedicate this to Emperor Caesar, because of course Roman emperors have a million titles, and one of which at this point is Caesar, son of the divine Nerva, Nerva. Traianus Augustus Germanicus Dacius. Germanicus and Dacius are titles that he got for his successful military campaigns in Germania and Dacia. Imagine putting that on an application. Um, <laughs> will, will one of my, my absolute favorite emperors, who I hope we get to talk about later, named Lucius Verus, has like a fun habit of adding titles to his name. And by the end of it, his name is like a whole paragraph of titles. It's quite fun. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Pontifus Maximus in his 17th year in the office of Tribune. So that's right there. I think that's incredibly interesting because remember the Romans did not consider the emperor to be the king. Because when we say emperor, we think Oh, emperor means ruler, but emperor is actually kind of like a, a mistrans. It's like a not mistranslation, but in Rome there is no word for emperor. It's actually imperator, and imperator means like commander. So he's being honored as like a military commander here, and he's here. They mentioned seventeenth year in the office of tribune because if you'll recall, Augustus Caesar, Augustus Caesar changed the rules so him. And the people who follow in his footsteps would be tribunes for life, which would enable them all the powers of a dictator without being a dictator. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. There's no mention of being a king in this. There's no mention of absolute authority. He is a military commander who also holds public office. Even this far down the line, 100 years later, they're still clinging to this idea that they live in a democracy. Even the very beginning, right? The Senate and people of Rome. <laughs> No, I mean, does this not sound like something that that you might see in the United States? Like, where well, you know like... what? I I think though to give Trajan a little credit here, the fact I think that he's instilling, even though like where the Republic years are, are long gone, I think a good emperor can still restore some faith. Like the the, the name of this series is the decline of democracy, but even as that democracy is declining. A good emperor can actually, you know, empower people and be like, hey, you know, you still have a role here in, in, in this government. And, and, and I think that that's testament of, of what one person could do in that instance. No, you know, you're right. Trajan is, is very much a benevolent dictator. And uh, through that, the Senate is empowered to make decisions and they help Trajan bring prosperity to the the empire that he oversees. Right. So. Um, in his 17th year in the office of tribune, having been acclaimed six times as imperator, six times as consul, to demonstrate of what great height the hill and place was removed for such great works, which mm -hmm. essentially just means like we, we, we dedicate this statue to our loving ruler who has been doing amazing things. And these are his long list of titles and uh, official accolades. So Trajan had a very laid back approach to Christianity. Um, different emperors have different opinions on the Christians throughout Rome's history. There's a famous correspondence between Trajan and Pliny the Younger while he was governing a provincial state where 
Pliny is asking Trajan how he should deal with insurrections from Christians, right? Like, because the Christians, you know, they threaten our way of life and they're, you know, uh, they, they go against our religion. And he's like, you know, some of them are maybe plotting revolts. How should I deal with them? So Trajan basically has four rules for Pliny that he writes back. And they, they not only speak to Trajan's method of governing Christians, but also his method of governing in general. Mm-hmm. So we have one, he says, do not persecute the Christians. Do not seek them out for trial. If you find people guilty of insurrection and they happen to be Christians, then you should punish them. If they deny that they're Christian, then make them show proof that they are not worshiping the gods and then they can be pardoned. And do not, and this is, I think, the most important part, do not consider anonymous accusations. Hmm. 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 Anonymous accusations are a tool of the more despotic Roman emperors for, like, witch trials. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine how bad that goes, right? Yes. Now, this this is really important because I, I think that a lot of the legitimacy of the United States is based on the right to an expedient and fair trial. Like so much of, so many citizens buy into this this whole thing that we call a country because there is a judicial system that is gonna give us our fair day, our fair day in court. And I think if you, if, I, I think what Trajan is doing here is absolutely brilliant because he's like, okay, even if I, if even if we personally don't like this group of people over here, they deserve somewhat of a fair day in court. And I think that that creates so much legitimacy when you when you have when you're using that rule of law. I mean, it's almost like a, an early version of like a bill of rights in in some ways. It's like it's it's he probably writ, he wrote this in a letter, but it's it's like almost some some very 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 ancient form of a bill of rights of like here's what you're entitled to in order before we can execute you or render punishment. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, and a lot of emperors use the Christians as like an excuse, like Nero blamed the fire of Rome on the the Christians and fed them to lions and Tiberius wasn't too fond of them either. But Trajan is like, you know, just leave them be. Who cares what they're doing? If they're causing problems, deal with it. If they recant, then then let them go on their merry way. And this will play into kind of like the rise of Christianity as well. So Trajan great almost an early form of the bill of rights based on 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 how to treat christians how does he go out my friend pretty peacefully he's riding home from one of the provinces after a successful campaign and he falls ill and has a stroke so yeah he he does you know pretty good um he rules for 19 years he's on his way home from from the the middle east uh modern day syria he has a stroke and he dies the last bit of interesting information and i want to i want to impress that we barely scratch the surface of trajan here um he's one of the most important emperors and i would highly suggest to your viewers if they're interested in doing at least like a little bit of of digging if, if you find the wars in Dacia and Moesia. Interesting, because he's a fascinating emperor. Um, but so when I say the last bit of information, I mean the last bit of information that I'm going to divulge about him, <laughs> which is that 
when he dies, his nephew, Hadrian, is elevated to be the next emperor. But historians are a bit iffy on whether or not Trajan actually made this call or if this call was made by Trajan's wife, Pompeia. Because there's some some reason to believe that Trajan didn't dislike Hadrian, but he thought Hadrian was too, like, impudent to be emperor. But Pompeia was a huge fan of him. She loved her nephew. And she forged a letter from Trajan and had a an actor lie on Trajan's deathbed so that people could witness Trajan say, I name Hadrian as my successor. Wow. Wow. That's 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 quite a production there on on his wife's behalf. <laughs> um, I, I want to I, I do want to pause right here and, and just kind of sum up a little bit about Trajan uh, Trajan before we, we move on in the next episode. I, you know, we kind of even joked a little bit offline that like, hey, you know, when someone's doing a good job, there's some there's not that much to be said or there's not some juicy yeah. controversy and i kind of want to touch upon that a little bit in our final analysis here because i think that being a good ruler it's okay to be uneventful i actually i, I think that 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 like a lot of people consider good rulers to be the loudest the most impactful the most the, the most brash and and the most in your face and i did this and I tore down this corrupt system here and there. But when we think of Lincoln, Lincoln was kind of like a reluctant actor. Like he didn't necessarily want to do all of this brash, crazy stuff. It's actually circumstance that kind of led, that kind of pulled, that kind of tugged at him, that forced him to kind of have to take all of these these actions to, to sort of maintain the United States. And I think that's okay. If you're a ruler and you're living during crazy times, well, then you may need to do some crazy things. But I think that that's okay. And I, I think that if we look back at our presidents, if we look back into history, just because somebody, you know, doesn't have all of these juicy stories or all of these juicy anecdotes, I think that we can also say that they were great. And I think keeping the peace is a really like immensely difficult job. And I think that if we start evaluating historical figures in that light, we're going to be much better off for it. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I think that, um, I mean, like, I can't really name, like, when I think of like, who, like, think of like, um, presidents, I, I generally, first and foremost, will think of new presidents, because they're you know, more recent. But if you ask me to like think back, I think of wartime presidents. I don't think of the caretaker presidents because like you said, they don't do anything interesting. And it's, you know, if you, when you do a good job, often people won't know that you've done anything at all. You just, your, your work goes unnoticed. It's only when things are, when stuff is hitting the fan, so to speak, that the, the eyes of history get turned on you sometimes. And and Trajan falls in that, that category, even though very much so the eyes of history are on him and and know of him and his exploits. In terms of what we talk about, it's it's tough. You you're right. We we talked about it and, and I had mentioned how like it, it almost feels like 
like it's hard to, to talk about him in this regard because it's like he did one good thing, then he did another good thing, and it's it's just like rattle dryly rattling off history, you know. If we if we want better lead because I think leaders look to the past of how they could be best remembered. Like I was in a meetup uh, a couple of days ago and we were talking about the pyramids and all of these pharaohs wanted to create these pyramids so they could be remembered. They're like, oh, got to be remembered. And I think the way that we treat historical figures is actually going to have an impact on successive figures that come down the line. Because if we create a culture where we're celebrating people that were quote unquote boring, but very peaceful and very productive, then that sends that that sets a precedent of a future behavior. We are basically a product of what we cherish. That's that's the big takeaway I'm trying to get away with here. And if we cherish the corrupt, if we cherish the the most outlandish and the most ridiculous, well then that's what we're going to get moving forward because people are going to just follow what they think is going to uh you know make them notorious. Yeah. 100% Brett, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Aaron. It's always a pleasure. This concludes the 10th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azrod.